Okay, as in go. Sorry, one second. Fork Tales, a podcast that feeds the food and beverage world. Oh, awesome. Tales is brought to you by Vigor, a branding and marketing agency for passion-driven, innovative restaurant, beverage, and hospitality brands. Learn more at VigorBranding.com. If you love what we're serving up, please give Forktails a five-star review on your podcast service of choice. Think of it as a tip for good service. Hey everyone, today I'm joined by my friend Richard Pennick. He is a brand strategist and fractional CMO. Fractional is what I said. That's a very important new word that you guys need to learn, and we'll talk about that and more. But before we get in, say hello, give a little bit of backstory. Hi, Joe. Good to see you. Um, yep. So my name is Richard Pennock. I'm born and raised in the UK. Um, undergrad, I was a historian at the University of Leeds, which is in the north of England. Um, I spent three years at BJKNE, which is a WPP media agency. Um, and then in 2006, I moved over to the US. Uh, I did my MBA at Georgetown. And um, between first and second year, I married my then girlfriend, now wife, Amber, who is from the United States. Um, thinking I would spend a few years in the US. Uh, I think it's 17 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> uh, uh, via Minneapolis, I spent a few years at Target. I worked in corporate strategy and marketing. Uh, and then moved over to um, an agency up there, Olson. Um, spent a few years there. They then acquired a company down in Austin, Texas. And as much as I enjoy Minneapolis, the uh, the winters were a little brutal and the temptation of sunshine and, and all Austin <laughs> had to offer was too much. So I came down and I ended up staying. Um, and amongst other things down here, I had the marketing at Taco Deli, which is a Colt Austin restaurant brand, um, 12 locations, I believe it is now, in Austin, Dallas, and Houston, um, and then moved over to Freebirds and was a VP of marketing, head dot marketing there for uh, about a year, um, and then I decided to step away, um, and I am now exploring entrepreneurialism um, and working as a fractional CMO and consultant. Awesome. It's it's quite the impressive CV, uh, especially with that uh, Georgetown uh, flex. Um, <laughs> that's great. And I, I, I completely would do the same thing. In fact, I kind of did. I moved from Pennsylvania to Atlanta thinking I was going to get much warmer. And uh, I feel like I still need to go further south. I, I just hate the snow and the cold. So I'm with you. Sure. Um, so you've done a lot um, across both the agency side and the client side, mm -hmm. um, how have you made that transition um, from agency to client side? What were some of those challenges and how do you overcome them? Sure. I mean, that, it, it's, it's an interesting question. I suppose there are many dimensions to it. On the agency side, you tend to be focused on one particular discipline, in my case, brand strategy, um, and you really become a, a, an expert in that space. So you go deep, but typically across multiple industries. Um, and, and really kind of hone those skills. And, and that's, you know, interesting, um, compelling. Then when, when one comes client side, you know, you, you move into a, a senior marketing role and you realize that while, you know, the brand strategy background is, is certainly um, fundamental, you have to become much broader in your skill set. Um, and I suppose spread yourself um, much wider. Um, 
So there's a learning curve in terms of, you know, other disciplines. Um, you also have to become comfortable becoming reliant on others. Um, you know, your team becomes, becomes super important, the people you surround yourself with. Um, and really have to go on a, on a journey of continuous learning. I think one of the things that I realized coming out of business school was I think for a short period of time, I, I, I felt smart and I felt like I had you know, a lot of things down and I felt ahead of the curve. Um, and then, you know, as you progress in your career, you realize that marketing as a discipline is, is evolving and changing and moving so quickly that, you know, continuously immersing yourself in learning is, is absolutely critical. And as you come into, you know, a leadership role client side, um, you know, it, it, it's even more important. You cannot master everything, but you need to know enough um, that you can have insights, give feedback, critique, and 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 move move the move the brand forwards. Yeah, that's such a it's a good point, and <laughs> it makes me laugh. And there's a part of me that also feels bad. So, like when you when you do a strategy, let's say, let, let's take the the worst or the most drastic, right? So you do a brand strategy in let's say, uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. All right. And you have, you have a marketing strategy and all the stuff, all the things you want to do. And you're, and you're saying certain things to your client, whether it's a C level leadership, because you're, uh, a, you know, a client side or literally with a client across the table because you're agency side. And so you're, you're saying these things and you're pushing them to do amazing things to get the traction, yada, yada. And then the iPhone drops and then like half the things you said that were valuable and had to happen have actually shifted now. And now you're like, mm-hmm. no, we need to be here. And I think it almost gives marketers and marketing uh, leaders and thinkers uh, a little bit of a stigma from the more uh, rigid and steadfast group of the operations side or even president CEO side that are looking for stability and control and mastery, um, using my archetype terms there, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, as opposed to they see marketers and we maybe have this stigma of kind of be a little more willy nilly, a little more, um, less put together. Oh, their strategy shifted. Does that mean they were lying to us before or are they lying to us now? So we almost have this stigma of like, um, at best curiosity peaked or interest peaked and at worst liars. There's a whole book called all marketers are liars. Uh, it's actually quite a great book. Um, have you encountered that? And, And if you have, how do you talk to the operations side and, uh, at the president level and give them assurances of the stability and the control and the processes that they need to see to feel confident in what you're doing? Sure, I know, and I think, and I think you make a very good point, right? Um, you know, on the agency side, you know, you're often challenged to to really push the limits um, and see how far you can stretch something. And I think good clients really want that, but good clients have to act as the bridge back to the business and really understand where the rubber hits the road um, and how to translate a lot of that great thinking and that great strategy into something that's sort of practical. Um, and that and that the business can bear, right? It's the you know strategies. You know, strategy is useless if if it can't be executed um, effectively. Um, honestly, Joe, for me, you know, the best brand strategies are those that don't stick in the lane of marketing. They are things that truly influence and affect the entire business. I mean, that's you know, a brand brand is not is not singularly marketing, right? It's every experience, every touch point 
that um, guests, employees have with the company. Um, and 100%. Yeah. Sorry to jump in, but no. I've been notorious for saying this. Brand strategy is business strategy. 100%. Like, period. 100%. Yeah, I'm with you. And it's so interesting. I mean, in my experience is often I've come into roles, whether it's on the agency side or on the client side, and the conversation has to start around brand strategy as this, as this um, marketing discipline and, and very much kind of sticking in that lane. But the true excitement comes when you start to see the eyes light up of CEOs, operators, you know, folks in HR, and they can start to see how this strategy and the narrative behind it can start to affect, in a positive sense, um, you know, all, all facets of the business and their particular discipline and give clarity and focus and consistency. And I think that's where it starts to become really compelling. It's knowing that, um, you know, operations and the HR team and marketing and everyone is, is, is operating in lockstep. Um, and so I think, you know, I don't think it's a question of, selling so much as as enlightening and and getting bringing them along with the with with the strategic narrative and then seeing how this can actually bring clarity for them bring focus i mean ultimately that's what strategy is right it's a it's a it's 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 making a set of choices and deciding where you're going to place your bets and if we're all placing our bets in the same place in a place that we all believe then there's going to be excitement enthusiasm momentum um and that can be truly transformative for a business. And should be, like you said. Um, so we spend a lot of time when we're developing strategies for our clients. I'm notorious for saying anytime that they say, well, your strategy or the vigor strategy, I'm like, no, 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 no. This is your strategy. You know, this is from you. This is to your organization. You need to own this. You need to adopt this. This is yours. This is not ours. Um, we may have done it for you. We may have done it with you, I should say, but it's yours. And we, we spend a lot of time, uh, fostering championship around the brand, uh, who's going to own it. Who's going to trickle it down. Who's going to shout from the rooftop as it were. But I really like your metaphor of, um, of what you just said. I'm, I just blanked on it though. Uh. Anyway, I, I really like that. I mean, it, like when you, when you're lockstep and everybody is owning the strategy, it makes identifying the right good ideas mm -hmm. as well as identifying the wrong good ideas. So ideas are great and everyone has them, but you need a mechanism to evaluate and say, Hey, while a Doritos Locos taco ripoff will be good for our, like would be a good and it would sell. It just isn't our brand yeah. and it doesn't make sense here. And I think that's the perennial challenge, right? It's always the, you know, there can be good ideas and interesting ideas that in isolation can drive sales, move a business forwards. But the challenge is when you start to have multiple interesting ideas that aren't aligned around the strategy, the danger is that you start to create organizational, um, in the extreme chaos. Um, and you know, there are great ideas that can work in the short term, but if they're not aligned with the strategy, you know, we need to thoughtfully put them to one side, or if we feel so compelled, then, you know, we need to go back and look at the strategy because maybe we don't have the right strategy and that's okay. Right. Um, you know, strategy, you know, what's the saying? Um, uh, in, 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 they say in, in, 
going into battle, you know, the, the best lays, or I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's something about, you know, the strategy is great until, until first contact and then it all comes apart. Right. Um, yeah. I think Mike Tyson said it better. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. They, exactly. There you go. Yeah. Far more eloquent, far more eloquent. Um, but that idea that, yeah, you know, you have to be flexible. Um, you know, the worst, I think the worst strategies are when you are so rigid and dedicated and committed that, that there are forces that, that, compelling you to reevaluate and that's okay right that's absolutely fine that's the business is, is moving so quickly these days um but we need to be disciplined enough to to know when to say no um and that's yep. the great challenge or one of the great yeah no i mean no such a powerful word and what's what's interesting is when you have a small growing brand and by small in in the restaurant space i, I would put small as the um one two 50 unit. Mm-hmm. I think after five zero, you start to get into medium and then sure. medium just level setting here. Medium would probably be 50 units to about 200, maybe around there. And then it starts to become large. Um, but the, the, the issues faced in that small to medium size, the SMBs as they were, um, are shared and a lot of it ladders up to brand and it ladders up to uh, a COO or a director of operations that is focused on efficiency and reducing, um, you know, labor, labor, uh, fees or, or, or all that in the line item, basically just how do we make things le- as least expensive mm-hmm. as possible and as smooth as possible. But that sometimes can be antithetical to the bigger brand picture. Um, you know, and so I think a, a good example of that would actually be the antithesis. You know, I read, uh, maybe an anecdote, maybe a true account of, um, Southwest Airlines. Their purpose is to be the least expensive airline in the sky. And so with that focus and that that gold standard um, or mantra, as it were, when somebody came to him and says, guys, we can do a filet mignon. People want it on our long flights. The question becomes, is that going to help us be the cheapest or least expensive airline in the sky? Well, no, but mm, stop at the butt. It's a great idea. I love filet mignon. It's not the right choice for us. And I think it's that having a leader that knows how to absorb and own. And then, uh, I think you kind of mentioned pivot with the strategy is so invaluable. Um, so you, you and I met when you took the helm of, of the brand Taco Deli. You mentioned just a minute ago. Um, and you led a very successful brand evolution. And you also mentioned it's, it's a cult favorite. So, I mean, talk about a very uh, surgical operation. Um, how did you go about approaching that effort, and, and what were some of the challenges? And full disclosure for those listening, uh, we were not selected, okay? But <laughs> but the, the work, nonetheless, turned out quite fantastic. Um, it was one of those scenarios where even though we're competing against, uh, I believe the company was Butler Brothers, uh, and we did not win the day, I was impressed with their work. I think they did a pretty good job. I definitely have some of my own takes on some things I thought were off, but overall success. So how did you do that? How did you go about approaching that effort? Well, I think the first word is carefully. Um, I mean, to your point, this is a a cult Austin brand. Um, Austin has a very good sense of itself. And, you know, here's this British guy coming in to this brand from essentially out of town um, and so, you know, uh, quite understandably, I think, you know, organizationally and, and in the community and amongst, you know, real brands, you know, brand enthusiasts, 
there's a there's a perception there could be a real danger here, right? Um, and so, you know, th- th- almost my first principle was be humble, right? Um, I, you know, I need to I need to you know do my research. Um, you know, we did the qual, we did the quant, we talked to a lot of people, but really going with a degree of humility. It was for me to listen, learn, understand. Um, and here's the thing: the great thing about Taco Deli, and I think. You know, there, there, in a sense, there are there are two types of brands, right? There are some brands that are struggling to find a truth, um, and then there are brands that have so many truths. The struggle is which truth you're going to lean into, um, and 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 then how are you going to cascade um, everything from that singular focus? Um, and so, really, for me with Taco Deli, it was about listening, kind of, you know, understanding where the great the greatest opportunities were in terms of the brand positioning um, and then really kind of carefully playing those back to folks and, and getting reactions both from within the company, obviously, you know, the founders and the owners who are deeply invested and, and, and have a great sense of, of the brand. Um, and then, you know, back to, back to brand champions in the community, you know, the worst thing that we could do to go in and completely, um, completely, you know, sort of egotistically blow this thing up. Yeah, um, burn it down. <laughs> yeah, no, totally, I mean, yeah, and, and, and rebuild, um, which was not the challenge. It was it was as much about um, focus, prioritization, and articulation, and then bringing it to life in a way that, that you know, moved the brand forwards, but felt um, true um, and like a, a natural evolution of... Um, of, of the long history of the brand. Um, so it was a very sort of, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a long process. There was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of tweaking. Um, but really, you know, I, I, I feel like I was the, the enabler, the facilitator, but it wasn't for me to say, yes, this is, this is, this is where we, this is where we, you know, where we, where we need to land. This is, this is, you know, it wasn't for me to go in and sell it hard. Right. It was mm-hmm. for me to listen, learn, tra- you know, present, present articulations and then um, play those back and, and really sort of carefully focus and hone. Um, and it was, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a great experience. Um, you know, there was a lot of, like I said, a lot of back and forth, um, uh, a lot of delicate work. Um, but, you know, I, I, I feel we landed in a great spot and, you know, it really did act as a catalyst for, for a lot of sort of strategic thought within the company. And certainly the things that, you know, you and I would think about when we think about, you know, classic brand strategy in terms of visual identity, you know, logo, restaurant experience. But, you know, I think even more broadly than that, and that's what made it incredibly satisfying. Yeah. So for, for those that are unaware, I probably should have level set this first. Uh, uh, Taco Deli is, uh, like Richard said, a, a small chain, about 12 units. Um, they're known for, of course, tacos. Uh, however, in the, I would say Texas, but specifically Austin area, tacos are breakfast and lunch. You know, so Taco Deli was open till about 3 p.m. every day, mm-hmm. uh, starting, what, at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m.? Uh, 7 a.m. 7 a.m. Yeah, this is a few years back, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think they've changed a little bit because of the pandemic. Yes. Um, and, you know, money talks. Uh, however, I always thought that was a very great, value because at 3 p.m. you basically had your night to explore side hustles, whether that side hustle is a hobby or a true, um, 
hustle, meaning you're, you're looking to build something to eventually go off and do full time yourself. Um, so they have breakfast tacos, they have great salsas and all that stuff. And it is a, a quick serve format, even though it's elevated, uh, it's still quick serve. You order at the counter, you get your food and you roll or, or hang out at a small dining area. But from what I recall, there's not a lot of dining area in most of them. Um, very Correct. small footprint. Correct. Um, so great concept. So you went, you went from the, the Brit went from tacos to burritos <laughs> and you shifted over to free birds world burrito, which has a fantastic purpose baked in at least outside looking in, um, you know, for those listening, if you don't know Freebirds, look them up. One of our previous guests, uh, uh, Bobby Shaw, had, had some experience at Freebirds as well. Um, so when you went to from tacos to burritos, uh, how was that transition? Because, you know, Freebirds d- didn't necessarily need a brand evolution, um, but they definitely needed marketing. So what were some of the challenges there and, and how did you make that shift? For sure. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it was moving from, as you say, a restaurant with twelve locations to uh, north of fifty locations, um, and so you know, there there is just a you know a, a, a different kind of organizational dynamic right at that point, um, um, and so you know, just getting kind of getting a handle on on that was important. Um, but I think the principle is still the same, right? Um, you know, you have to have a you know, a clear, well-articulated, compelling um, brand strategy, and using that for using that as the foundation to identify opportunities to you know grow the brand, push the brand forwards, um, you know, uh, drive sales. Um, to me, that that principle still remains. I think the great challenge, and this isn't particular to Freebirds uh, necessarily, but. Um, you know, there's this sort of almost this kind of academic way of which you want to do things, right? Which is, we're going to start with the brand strategy, and then we're going to we're going to look at this piece. We're going to look at our loyalty program, and then we're going to look at our our, our paid media, and so on and so forth. Um, of course, the train is moving, right? Um, and you know, you've got to you've got to keep things going. Um, you know, even though one might want to start from the beginning. And so the great challenge, I think, is as you develop, you've made the point about the, the 90-day plan, as you develop a plan, how do you develop a plan that is both short terms in terms of, you know, being able to have some quick wins, um, being able to drive some sales today, tomorrow, but then also is looking longer term, um, more towards the sort of the long-term brand evolution and 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 so on. Um, how do you build that plan at the same time and then keep the things moving together? Um, that's the great yep. challenge. Um, and you know, as with any business, um, you know, there's always you know limitations around around resources. Um, and so, how do you then prioritize across those short-term needs versus those long-term needs? Um, and so, you know, that was, I suppose, a lot of my thinking going into the role at Taco Deli, going into the role at Freebirds, um, different context, but but same principles. Um, and you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a fine line that one has to tread. Yeah, you almost have to be um, maybe you have a better word for this, but I, I would say a flexible idealist. <laughs> um, I like that. <laughs> you know, so it's like. Yeah. I think you you have some people that go in that are flexible and you have some people that go in that are idealists 
and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with an idealist because in the long term, like you said, I, I, the ideal is the goal. You want to work mm-hmm. towards the ideal. Um, but I think pure idealists get frustrated by, you know, some of those uh, holes in the wall of the ship that are, you know, flooding in water. Um, and I think there's, you know, being flexible or maybe a realist idealist <laughs> is a better, uh, more quippy one-liner. And, and the real the realness of it is, there's varying degrees of holes in the wall, in, in the hull, I should say. Uh, you probably want to tackle the biggest ones mm-hmm. and just succumb and realize that you're still going to take on water until you can actually appropriately and effectively fill in those holes. And it is a process and it is a journey. And the building the proverbial plane as it flies is very real. I, I think that some leaders are so desperate for a complete answer immediately um, that they're not ready to accept that you're still going to take on some water as we fix this um, and that we are working towards an ideal, but it is a journey. Um, how, how have you mitigated that sense of urgency or maybe um, stubbornness with needing the right answers all at once? Sure. How have you come up against it? Uh, I think, and I think we all come up against it at various times in various guises. Um, it's kind of cliched and perhaps a predictable answer, but I do think one of the things that that's critical coming into a new role like that is quick wins, right? Um, show that you can do a couple of things that can move the needle, that can have some change, that can, you know, whether drive some sales, address an issue, whatever else it may be. And there's just a degree of credibility that comes with that. Um, uh, you know, that, that to me is, that to me is huge. Um, but then not losing sight of the longer term and, and being, um, you know, a little bit stubborn in that regard. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's all these pressures in the, in the immediate, um, and, you know, often a desire for, you know, now, 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 which is completely reasonable and, and, you know, it <laughs> got to drive sales, right. We've got to, got to, got to move things forward today, but being a little bit stubborn and being a little bit, um, just just focused i think might be a better word on on the value of what you know brand strategy and and, and and you know can do in the long term to really um you know have a have a bigger effect and i think there is a degree of um stubbornness and determination and just 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 um commitment that you know one has to hold oneself to yeah and i think it's up to leaders too to hopefully understand that encourage the movement forward, but not focus in on the remaining suite of issues that need to be addressed because it can be very dejecting. It can be very discouraging. I think it's how you lose a good leader and otherwise fantastic CMO or COO or whatever director of uh, kind of person. If, you know, if they have a win, recognize it, yeah. you know, celebrate well, it. Yeah. And oh, I would say the other, the other piece of the other pieces, um, yes, you know, there are opportunities to solve some of those short term issues, but the value of that longer term strategy is that when you then go to solve those issues, you have the lens through which to put the solutions. Um, and that is just, that is so powerful. Um, and, and frankly efficient, right? I mean, businesses, uh, are, are always, looking for efficiency, um, a, a compelling brand strategy when you start to look at loyalty strategy or, you know, media strategy or whatever else it may be. Um, 
that becomes the lens through which everything else is put. And yes, we're going to articulate a, a loyalty strategy that is that is uh, that is standalone. But ultimately, laddering up the brand strategy, you've done a great deal of the work. Um, and so, you know, recognizing that 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 can drive efficiency um, and alignment down the line, I think is 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 very powerful. And as a marketing leader, it's you know it's your job to to help others understand um that that reality um mm-hmm. and get them you know aligned with and bought into the long term 100 percent. and like i said i think that's true of, of of most every um you know most every marketing leader certainly you know my experiences um but I, you know that's 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 why we get paid right that's right yeah well i mean some leaders come into it i think uh with heart in the right place, but maybe head not in the right place in times. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, I've definitely seen CMOs that have all the answers and they come in like a wrecking ball. They want to force square pegs in the round holes. They, cause they have the solution. They have the answer. They're confident. And it's probably what got them the job, but you almost position yourself as a hero. And when you come in and people realize that Oh no, he just likes to wear a cape. He's actually just a normal person or she, it, it can be quite discouraging. And I think that's maybe, um, you've, you've seeded the wrong kind of plant there. Um, as opposed to being very level-headed, being very realist, but idealist at the same time, uh, which puts you in a good position because your first 90 days, um, there's actually a fantastic book that is aptly named the first 90 days. Um, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. My friend, uh, and client Daniel Gonzalez from, uh, simply salad over on the West coast. He suggested it. I read the book. It's fantastic because your first 90 days actually has very little to do with getting things done, done. It has very much to do with building rapport, relationships, understanding systems, finding champions, finding people who are maybe uh, hesitant to get on board and realizing what their motivations are while trying to plug some quick wins, like you said. And the worst thing you can do is steamroll in there and force it because you actually lose you lose the team. You lose the mm-hmm. people that are there to actually enforce it. So it's a great book. I suggest anyone reading it, especially when you're transitioning. Um, and, it, and when I read it, I looked back on all the times I took on a new role, you know, prior to vigor and thought, Oh my God, I was an idiot. I was doing all the wrong things. And that explains why I got a lot of pushback in certain areas where at the time I was confused. I'm like, I'm trying to help. Why are you against me? Mm-hmm. Um, but it very much is a human dynamic. So uh, the final thing I really want to dive into here is, you know, you had mentioned earlier, uh, rightly so, that this this marketing industry, not just the restaurant marketing, but all marketing is so fluid and ever changing. And technology is the biggest word right now, uh, in, in the restaurant world specifically as well. So how have you leveraged tech to bolster and build your marketing efforts? Um, and have you found any platforms that you think are reliably effective and invaluable? That's a great question. I mean, technology, it flows through everything, right? Everything that we do in marketing these days or or, almost everything. Um, you know, I'm not sure if this, this directly answers your question. Um, but I think it's a, I think it's an important point to make. I think as a marketer, um, back to the comment I made earlier about, you know, limited resources um, and trying to be efficient. I think the, particularly for a small mid-size 
restaurant operator, I think the biggest challenge and opportunity are technologies that from you know, a user experience perspective are great for the guest, but also great for the marketing team. Um, you know, I've often spent, I feel like I spent too much of my time um, battling the tech um, and, and battling the, 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 the interface um, uh, in order to, to push out a campaign um, to get to get something out there that that, that seemingly um, you know should be relatively straightforward, and I think you know that's great if you're a you know if you're a, if you're a large company and you can have someone 100% dedicated to a particular piece of tech. Um, but I don't think you should have to have, and I'm being a little facetious here, a master's degree uh, to to operate some of the some of the marketing tech that exists out there. I think it should be intuitive straightforward and yes make it easy for the guests but also make it easy for 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 the the marketers and i think the companies that that do a great job of that and understand both sides of the equation um um are those you know who are who who are going to succeed um you know i know at um you know freebirds um and they you know this was announced a while back one of the uh, technologies that they're embracing is Cubeyond, um, the, yeah, the, the POS, POS system, the POS provider. Um, yeah. and in a sense, you know, I think we've all experienced this in the restaurant, but the POS is both this sort of, is this hub, but it's also these handcuffs, right? Um, and you know, we spend so much time figuring out how the different, the different, um, platforms that we want to leverage can, can interact with and interface with the POS and it's become, you know, I, I can think of multiple examples where I've been using platforms, and uh, you know, we've had problems with the with the data because it's not it's not cleanly interfacing with the POS. At which point, it's kind of terrifying, right? Because you're like, well, mm-hmm. do I trust? Do I trust the data? Um, arguably, it's more dangerous to have to have inaccurate or, or misleading data than it is to have to have any data. Um, yeah, we call it and, dirty data. Yeah, exactly. yeah, dirty data is horrible. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, I and I, I certainly don't want to to to, to speak for for Cubion, but you know, I think the questions that they were trying to answer in terms of a uh, um, you know a seamless experience, um, certainly for the guests, but also you know, a seamless experience on the back end and all that it sort of opens up and enables rather than handcuffs. Um, um, you know, I'm excited to see how that, how that pulls through. Um, um, and, and really, you know, as uh, I hope in the future, I have the opportunity to work with the brand who has taken them on board and embraced it. And I can, I can hopefully the, hopefully when the rubber hits the road, the reality will, 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 will play out and, and, and be, be as compelling as I, as I believe it can be. Yeah. One of the things I found with data, um, is interpretation of it is sometimes misleading or off. Uh, what I mean by that specifically is because we have so much data, we can see what media and activities are pushing people to, let's say, an online order, the, the, which is great. However, I think one of the problems that I've encountered is the shift from interested in a brand to purchase is only one part of a longer consumer journey. 
And there's a lot of things we do in marketing and advertising to get people from earlier in that journey, which is unaware and disinterested to aware and then building intrigue and the line to that, because it doesn't have a financial implication immediately, a lot of leaders can see that as not valuable and a waste of dollars. They want to see the direct line placed ad here. Person came to website, made purchase success. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's been one of our challenges uh, as an agency and me as a strategist and marketer um, to kind of, uh, untangle that knot and say, look, no, 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 no. What we're doing here is to get people aware. And so while getting an Instagram follower, doesn't seem like a financial win on the longer term journey. It absolutely is. That Mm -hmm. is moving someone from unaware and disinterested to committing to hearing from you and wanting to be connected. Um, but it doesn't seem it's valued as much by the operations and C level or CE level president level people. Um, have you come up against that and how have you, um, encouraged buy-in for efforts that don't have an immediate transactional, uh, implication? Sure. And I, I, you know, I think I've, 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 I've said to others in the past, you know, I can't remember the last time I saw an ad for, uh, much anything, let alone a restaurant where I thought I'm going to click now, go purchase, or even, even do so in the next few days. Right. Um, I had this joke with a with an old friend, you know. Uh, you know, TV uh, remains the, uh, I believe it remains the largest largest dollar spend, uh, certainly up there for 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 um, advertising, um, and yet uh, you know no one's ever clicked a TV ad um, and made a purchase, right? And yet somehow as an industry, it still persists and survives. Um, not to say that 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 that, that click to purchase doesn't have a doesn't have a, a, a role to play um, but I think that's it right I think it's understanding I think it's being able to communicate that you know there is a there is a place for you know clicking through trying to drive a transaction and obviously there are uh, you know there are simple ways to, to measure that and that has value um, but also being able to understand and sell the story of the brand more broadly and understanding how that plays in is, is critical and I think I think you know, it's a it's a perennial challenge, right? I think you know leaders want to see want to see sales now, um, and I think it's something that you know, frankly, you just have to play out over time, um, and you know, look back at the data and and, and build the case. Um, but yeah. it's yeah, it's a perennial challenge. You know, we we just we, we live we live in this age of sort of instant satisfaction, right? Where we just want we want something right now, uh, whether that's a you know a, something from Amazon or a, or a sale. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a perennial challenge. That's for sure. Yeah. And and guiding people there and getting them to buy in is really tough. Mm -hmm. A lot of it has to do too with, with, with what you're marketing. Um, for sure. And we've, we've come across this a number of times. It's like, you know, I'm not afraid to say that some efforts that we have did not meet the, uh, the goals and KPIs that we had set despite our best efforts. Mm -hmm. Um, and when we go back and look at it, for instance, we we unpacked in one scenario. It's like, wait, you launched a new product. Did you ever test this with people? Like, did you ever even ask them if they wanted it? And the answer was no. Um, and then the angle was health. And then we come to find out that the caloric levels of this particular product were astronomical. 
compared to their other products. So mm-hmm. it actually wasn't the healthy option. It may have had an initial perception of health, but as you know, I mean, we have to show calories. So it's like, boom, the, co- the, the caloric number was like, what, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know? And so there were all these other issues and yet months after operations and uh, C level or CEO level leadership persisted that what we had done failed. Mm-hmm. And it's like, right. I mean, that is technically correct. It did not work, but the root of the problem was not the marketing or the messaging. The root of the problem was the product that people didn't want. And you saw in even the test sales, you had a bump of people that were like, oh, I want to try this out. And then the sales dropped. And so, you know, one of the questions I posed, I was like, not to be um, inflammatory here, but if the product was built for success, why didn't the sales plateau higher? Sure. Why did it go from trial to not buying again? That's a problem. So there's a, there's a lot of data, that kind of data needs to be looked at, but I think is conveniently overlooked sometimes because marketing is meant to be a hero and a savior when I hate to say it, but we're not, you know, we're, 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 <laughs> well, we're think, part of the team. Think, you know, I think it goes to an interesting, an interesting sort of broader point, which is, um, in a sense, collective ownership, right? We each have our roles to play. Um, but I think, you know, and I know Simon Sinek and others have talked about this a lot, but this sense of, you know, a safe environment, right? To go experiment, to go fail. And it's very much kind of win together, lose together. And I think those are the, the healthiest, the healthiest environments, right? Where, Hey, it's a, you know, the campaign that you were, that you were, um, that you were driving didn't, didn't work for whatever, or, you know, worked on some dimensions, not others. It's okay for us to do an honest assessment of that. Um, let's figure out why, um, maybe someone missed something. We, we, some, we all missed something that we didn't, we didn't see go, okay, let's go. Next time we go, we learn, we move on and, and we do better. And I we think that, that is, I think that sort of healthy environment is, is, is critical to learning and growing because if you don't, then the temptation can be to everyone's pointing fingers. Everyone can, can transfer. You're looking to sweep it under the carpet, find other data, um, that, 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 that defends your position. Um, and that is not a path to, that is not a path to long-term success. Yeah. It's a very unhealthy relationship. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so let's, let's shore this up and talk about a very unhealthy scenario. <laughs> you, you have one final meal oh. <laughs> on this, in this existence. What are you oh. eating? Where are you eating and why? This is such a tough question. I mean, I, oh my goodness. I, I'm going to narrow it down to maybe three and then I'll narrow it down to one. So I love um, it. So to me, I mean, here's the thing. Food is so much about experience, right? Yes, it's about the food. It's about wonderful food, but it's about, it's about the people, the context, the environment. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the best meals, yeah, the, the, the food is, the heart of it has got to be great, but it's, it's often about so much more than that. And as I think back to, um, to my, some of the most amazing meals I've had, um, you know, this is, this is going to sound very kind of, I don't know, dramatic or whatever, but growing up in England, we used to go down to, to, to Italy um, and the south of France each summer. Um, it's not as glamorous as it sounds. It's, it's, it's not far, uh, <laughs> not so far from, uh, from the south of England. But, you know, we used to, we used to stay in this town called, or near this town called Luca um, in Tuscany, which is near Florence. And we would often kind of go up into the hills 
um, above Luca, and there would be these amazing family restaurants, and it really was like husband, wife, um, you know, it would just be a terrace, and they would have made fresh pasta um, and amazing views. It would be 10 p.m. at night. Kids would be running around, and the f- everything was fresh. Everything was phenomenal. There was one I, I was trying to remember. I think it's called Il Vipore. Um, and here's the thing. I don't even remember. I mean, the food was great at the time. It was by no means, you know, Michelin-starred food, but it was that whole kind of ambiance and experience, that sort of Italian summer evening, and it was just magical. So that, that, that might be one. Um, similarly, when we used to go down to South of France, we would drive down and occasionally we'd stop at an amazing restaurant. There was one called the Georges Blanc, um, which I think is a Michelin-starred restaurant. Um, and I remember the food was phenomenal, but I appreciated at the time that I didn't fully appreciate it. So um, I kind of you know, maybe go back there. Um, and then closer to home here in Austin, there's a phenomenal restaurant called Uchi. It's a sushi restaurant, um, which is kind of weird because Austin's not close to, not particularly close to the ocean. Um, but the food and the ambiance there, it's just amazing. And I've had some wonderful meals there with my wife and, and with my family. Um, so maybe it depends how I'm feeling uh, as that final meal approaches. But one of those three um, to give you a, to give you a more long winded answer. No, that's great. I mean, and, and some of those meals are just, um, I think you said magical. I think that's the right, the right word. You know, one thing I I really wish would come back is a reclamation of old guard standards. And what I mean by that is I'm going to, I'm going to throw it back to England, which sometimes gets knocked for its uh, cuisine. Beef Wellington is fantastic. (laughs) Uh It is an amazing dish. And I feel like it's been relegated as old guard, not interesting, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. But when you have a fantastic beef Wellington with a a solid cider, Mm -hmm. it is just like, Mm -hmm. well, it's it's not my final meal, but it's it's much like those Italian experiences, right? Like it's not complicated and doesn't need to be complicated, but it's about phenomenal ingredients, um, sort of produced, you know, with year, just years and years of experience and just being able to kind of refine it and perfect it. Um, and you can, you can taste it and it's just, it's magical. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of love and, uh, not trying to show off yes. and just letting the ingredients do what the ingredients do. Fresh herbs. Anybody yeah. who wants to get better in the kitchen, throw away the dry herbs, go get fresh herbs. It really makes a difference. <laughs> it <trust> certainly me. <laughs> does. <laughs> anyway. Hey, thanks for spending so much time with us and all of your insights. Um, it's just amazing. We could probably do a few more of these episodes, but I appreciate it. Um, and thanks for coming on. Fantastic. Well, thank you. I appreciate your opportunity to be on the, uh, on the podcast. Excellent. If you love what we served up, please follow us at Vigor Branding on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Medium. Fork Tales is produced by the team at Vigor. Audio and video post-productions provided by Zencaster. Music performed by Jet Trash and licensed through musicbed.com. Joseph handles his own hair, makeup, and stunts. Copyright 2003 to 2021, Vigor Graphic Design, LLC, all rights reserved.